take our Bibles back to Matthew chapter 10. I said uh, to the folks on Wednesday night that I had toyed with the idea of trying to cover chapter 10 in one in one big bite, and um, I'm glad I did not, because I was looking over it this morning, and I thought I probably could have stopped in the first two or three verses and really uh, had more than enough to say. So I, we're going to work our way kind of slowly through it as we have been. We're looking at this... Uh, beginning of Jesus's instructions to his disciples as he sends them out and we introduced it a little bit last Sunday and we will continue to see that as we go into the next uh, little passage but before we do that just a, a brief moment of prayer father we ask that you would open our eyes we ask that you would help us to see the truth that is in these words we know that anybody can read these words and figure out what they mean, but we need the Spirit's help to reveal them to us on a much higher level than merely intellectual. We don't want to just be smarter about the Bible. We want to be changed. So we pray that you would teach us what you intended for us to learn when you gave these words to Matthew. pray that you would help us not only to hear them, but also to do them however you lead us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The apostles are about to be sent out on their own for the very first time. They're going to go without Jesus, and they're going to be his representatives. They're going to do the same work that he did, just not with him there. But before they leave, there are some things that Jesus wants them to know. And Uh, As we move through Jesus' beginning instructions here, we see that, uh, just a brief overview of what we're looking at, we'll see that Jesus tells the men where to go in verses 5 and 6. He tells them what to do and how to do it. We get into verse number 7 down through verse number 10. And then in verses 11 through 15, we see how they're supposed to handle the responses that they will get when they are out there. It's important for us to recognize that Jesus is sending them out to represent Him, and so it is imperative that they do so the right way. They're going to be His emissaries, His ambassadors, and they must behave in in such a way then that they adequately reflect His character, His compassion, and His mission. And from these instructions, we can see how the apostles were supposed to behave while they were out, to properly represent the Lord of Harvest, but I hope, and I hope that we see that, and that becomes very clear to us. But I hope also we will see how we can draw applications from these instructions in how we are expected to labor in His harvest. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary on Matthew. He wrote one of the tragedies of contemporary Christianity and of the church throughout most of its history is that many of those who purport to represent Jesus either do not represent Him at all or represent Him poorly. And so it is my hope that each time that we open up the Scriptures, we find not only what it's been written for, but how that's going to affect my life. And and as we we focus on this idea of representing Jesus today, uh, I pray that you will see not just what He wanted them to do, but what He expects from us in this time as well. So as we begin, we look down in verse number 5. We notice, first of all, that Jesus directed them where to go. Uh, They could have gone anywhere, right? The whole world is the harvest field. 
But Jesus gave them specific instruction on which part of the field He wanted them to go. He said in verse 5, they're to go to My sheep. So we see in verse number 5, He says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was very precise here about where He wanted them to go. He said, do not go in the way that leads to the Gentiles, which would just be anybody who's not a Jew. And he says, don't even go to the half-Jewish region of the Samaritans. And the twelve apostles were uh, essentially directed to stay within this region of Galilee. Now, Matthew 15, Jesus uh, tells us that it was his mission to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And so now Jesus was sending the twelve on this very same mission. It was the one that he had been personally involved in. Now, of course, as we continue reading on through the Gospels by the end of Matthew and even on and through the book of Acts, we see that that harvest field has uh, included the entire world. We don't have a restriction anymore about only speaking to a certain group of people. We are commanded to go to the entire world. But this particular mission, Jesus was focused on reaching Israel. And He sent His workers where He wanted them to go. In our case, we we as the church have been called to go everywhere. We read in Matthew 28, we read, you know, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We see uh, throughout the, 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 the epistles that the, the, the missionaries and Christians have been traveling throughout the known world. And their job is to make disciples wherever they go. And that is a commission that was given to the church and that is a commission that we are involved with. And we personally cannot go to every city and village and town in the world. Some of you might not have even left the, you know, the town of Sherman yet. Uh, some, some of us have never gone to the other side of the country. Some of us have gone to uh, far foreign lands like Canada. We can't go everywhere. So we, as a part of the church, participate in the spreading of the good news of the Gospel. First, by praying, as Jesus directed uh, us as, uh, back in uh, chapter 9, praying that the Lord would send laborers into His field. We also support and participate by sending and supporting our brothers and sisters who will go to those parts of the world that we cannot. And they represent Jesus to those people, but they also represent us in, the, in that particular corner of the field. But third, we accomplish this by recognizing that we have been called to our own Jerusalem. That is, our own little corner of the world. For us, it's Sherman, Clymer, Cory, Spring Creek, or whatever part of the country you happen to be in. That's the, that's the mission field that we live in. We live in the harvest field. We pray that God would send laborers into that field, but we have to recognize that God expects us not only to be prayers, but also workers in our portion of the field. And so just as the disciples were sent off into the field to a specific people, we are to go to His sheep and represent Jesus to the world. Next, we read on and uh, as we get to continue on in the passage there, Jesus says to go with His message. 
This same message was what Jesus preached back in chapter 4. Look there if you will. He says, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is word for word what Jesus told uh, told the people as he was preaching. This is what John the Baptist preached. This is the message of Christ. And the apostles were tasked not only with the mission of Christ, but with his message as well. They were to preach and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. Their focus then was to be the same as Jesus's on the coming kingdom of God. And those who recognized it as they heard that message were directed to repent, turn to Jesus, turn to God through Jesus, his Messiah. And then we see these newly commissioned apostles had one message, one focus. They were going out to spread the news about the king and his coming kingdom. This same message that was entrusted to the apostles is the message that we carry today. And if we're going to represent Jesus properly, and in the way that he both demands and deserves, we must preach the same message that he did. Now, as a pastor, that, that has uh, quite a big a significance to me. As a pastor and as a preacher, I have a responsibility and an obligation to, as the Bible says, rightly divide the word of truth. The Bible is not a buffet where we get to read through it and say, well, I like this, but I don't like that, and, and I'll take this, but I'll leave that for another time or for someone else. We must be faithful to its message. For me, that means to preach what the Bible actually says and preach the Bible, not just to say, well, you know, that might be a little tricky right now. We're going to wait. We're going to, we're going to skip over that, but really focus on what it says. And that means that we must be faithful to the message, even the part that we don't like. Because there are parts in the Bible I don't like. And the parts that we don't understand. There are a lot of parts in the Bible that I do not understand. John MacArthur wrote again that the central message of the kingdom is the message about the king. And this is the purpose of the Scriptures, is to introduce us to the king. The Bible is not primarily for us to find out how to have a happy life. It's not written there to figure out how to overcome addiction how to fix your marriage, how to raise your kids, how to get along with people at work. It's not even about finding purpose in your life. The Bible was given to us to introduce us to the King and to tell us what the King requires from us. Now, all of these other things are important and they're very helpful for us, but first we have to understand what the primary message is of His of His Word. And if we're going to represent Christ well, we have to carry this message, which means first we need to understand His message. That's why it's so important that we read the Bible and that we we study the Bible and that we understand it because you can't carry a message that you don't know. You will not properly spread the message that you do not understand. Have you ever tried to explain a complicated math problem before you actually understood it? helping my boys with homework sometimes, and I'm thinking, I remember doing third and fifth grade, but this is this is uh, foreign to me. I have no idea what's going on. I can't probably explain it until I first understand what's going on. And so it's important that if we are going to spread the Word as He directs us to, we need to understand it. 
which means that at home, you've got to be studying the Word and be reading it on, and, 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 and diving into it on your own. It means that it's important that when we come to church, that the people that are teaching the Word of God are teaching the Word of God and that it's being preached and taught properly and thoroughly and clearly. And when you come, you're listening and you're, and you're, and you're striving to make sure that it makes sense and that you understand. And when you walk out, it's not a good sermon or a good lesson because there was a funny joke or because it was it was exciting and interesting, but because you got the message. Not the message that I'm giving, but the message that God is giving to us. This is how we will represent Christ. We will carry His message. The message that He wants to spread. Not necessarily the one that you or I want to spread. This preaching is what empowers our going. It gives us a purpose. Otherwise, why go? If all we're going to do is go, but not preach, or not teach, not spread the Word, then we've kind of wasted our time. The going is pretty worthless. Look down in verse number 8. We read not only that there were, uh, that they were the apostles, uh, where the apostles were to go to the sheep of Israel, but they were to go to the needy in Israel. Jesus said there in verse number 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, Cast out demons. Now we read earlier, Jesus had empowered these men with the ability to do these things that He's now commanding them to do. He authorized them. He equipped them uh, with power to heal, to resurrect, to cleanse, and to cast out. But this means then that they were going to go to people who needed their help. They were going to work among the sick, the diseased, broken, and the afflicted. This power to heal that the apostles had was their credentials. It proved that they had been sent and they truly represented the Lord of the harvest. This is what Paul calls the signs of a true apostle. Being able to do these things. And the reason that they had this power, the reason that they had this ability, was not so that they could go and impress. It wasn't so that they could go and entertain or even draw attention to themselves. They were to use the authority they had to support the message they preached. They were to draw attention to the Master and the Master's compassion for lost sheep. And just as Jesus went to the sick and the sinful, not the well and the righteous, His his apostles were sent to those same people. The people who were in need. Theirs was not going to be a a mission to the pretty people. They were going to go to the broken to the poor, the diseased. They were expected to get their hands dirty just as their Master did. And if we are going to represent Jesus well, we must go with His message, but we also must bring that message to His kind of people. We cannot ignore those who need our help. I wonder if we are guilty at times of overlooking the kinds of people that Jesus spent most of His time with. Think about the people that Jesus spent a lot of time with. Is that the same kind of people that I hang out with? Is that the kind of people that I minister to? Those who do not love me back? Those who take up too much of my time? Who are never in a position to return the favor? But these are the very kinds of people that Jesus had in mind when He empowered His disciples to go and help them. Though we may lack the same power and ability that they had, 
those same kinds of people still exist today. They live all around us. And if we go, we must go not only with the message of Christ, we must go to the people that Christ sends us to. We must go to the needy. Then we look down at the end of verse number 8 and on into verse number 9. Jesus begins to talk about how they're going to go and preach and heal. They were going to go freely and, 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 and dependently. He says at the end of verse 8 there, you received without paying, give without pay. Or freely you received, freely give. We continue reading. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. They were intended to go depending on the Lord. And Jesus had told them there in verse 8 that they had received without paying, or they had freely received. This means that, that they had been, it was a reminder, that they had been freely received, welcomed into the kingdom as disciples, but also they had freely received this power and authority as apostles. Both of those things, and based on the fact that they received them freely, they were then to give them freely. Jesus was reminding them here that this power was not theirs. It was God's who had entrusted it to them. They were the stewards of His authority and His power. Their power to help and to heal wasn't their own. So every time that they gave, every time that they healed, every time they cast out a demon, they were giving of what they themselves had freely received. But also here, Jesus was teaching them an important lesson on depending on God. Because they're this ban of, of bringing or acquiring these extra things like an extra shirt, an extra pair of shoes, uh, uh, money for your journey. All of these things were banned for this, for this trip here because it was going to teach them to rely on God's provision, not their own abilities. Not their own hustling abilities to, to figure out how they're going to do this. I can make some money on the way by doing this, by selling my little trinkets. I can make some money along the way by, by uh, fishing or building or something like that. Jesus wanted them to depend on Him, not on themselves. And He was saying a few things here by, by requiring this. First, He was saying, don't expect something in return for what you do in ministry. In other words, trust God to provide for you. When you go out there and you freely give, don't expect a tip. When we were at the wedding, I was, uh, I was talking to some of the ushers at uh, Josh and Alyssa's wedding. I was talking to the ushers. When you walk down the aisle and you seat someone, then you do this. And they're supposed to give you money. And uh, they didn't make any money that day because there was a bunch of cheap people at that wedding. But anyways, they, but uh, they, they were... Uh, they were not supposed to go into ministry with their hand out. What are you going to do for me? I healed you. Think about this for a moment. What would you do if someone came into town and healed your loved one? If you lost someone to death, you lost a child to death, or you lost a parent in death, what would you give if someone came into town and brought them back to you? They gave you that loved one back. I think we'd be willing to give anything. And the disciples here stood to make a lot of money with this superpower that they carried into these villages. They could attract a lot of attention. They could attract a lot of uh, benefits, if you will, to themselves. But Jesus says, no, you're not going out to make money. You're not going out to get rich. 
You're going out to participate in the mission. Jesus wasn't saying, though, that these men were, were expected to live a life of poverty, though. If we, if we were to look ahead in Luke 22, you can, you can look at it another time. Jesus had just sent the, 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 he had had the apostles back and they had already come back from a trip and he was going to send them out again. And he asked them, Luke 22, 35, he said, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you like anything? And they said, nothing. Because Jesus wasn't trying to keep them poor. He was trying to keep them focused. What's the mission? Why are you going? Are you going to make a lot of money? Because when we go with that mindset, it affects how we do things. We go where there looks like there's money. We go where there looks like there's provision. We go where it looks good to us instead of going to where we think we should go. Or to where Jesus wants us to. Jesus wanted them to go without bringing or requiring provision so that they would learn to trust in God's care. That the Lord of the harvest who sent them would take care of them and meet their needs, whatever they were. And the way that God provided for them was through the hospitality of other people. At the end of verse number 10, notice what it says there. The laborer deserves his food. There's an underlying implication here that those who benefited from the apostles' ministry would express their gratitude by providing the things that they needed. Food and shelter. They needed a pair of shoes. They needed a, a, a place to sleep. Those are the things that those people would do. But the apostles were not going expecting those things from them. You give me a place to stay, I'll heal your son. They were to go and freely give and the implication here was to those who freely received, you also freely give. Hey, I got an extra pair of shoes. You look like you can need some, Peter. And they passed them on. Hey, do you have a place to stay tonight? Hey, you look like you haven't eaten in a while. Let me, let me offer hospitality to you as a traveling missionary. Now this, this has ties back to the Old Testament. Back in Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, God told Israel, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. In other words, he was telling them, don't be so stingy with your food, with your grain, that you won't allow the, the ox, this beast of burden that is working for you, don't stop him from grabbing a mouthful of grain while he's treading out the grain. While he's working in the field, don't muzzle him so that he can't reach out every once in a while and grab some of the food and nourish himself. And that was understood not only as how they were to treat their animals, but it, it, became, it became recognized as a principle for caring for the needs of the men of God, prophets and priests, etc. Paul referred to this passage in, in Timothy when he explained to them how elders are supposed to be cared for by the church. He wrote in 1 Timothy 5.17, he said, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And he was explaining here that the elders, particularly those who preached and taught, should be considered doubly worthy to be cared for and supported by the church. Now there's a fine line here between the, 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 those who make their living by the gospel of trying to get rich and surviving 
There's a line there because if you talk to someone in ministry, we have the same needs that you do. We have the same likes and desires that you do. My head turns when I see a sports car. Uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I have to, you know, close my mouth when I see a nice big boat or I see a, uh, you know, a nice big house or things like that. But those who are, who are called into this type of a ministry are, are, are called to walk a fine line here because the Bible says Paul tells them that they are the type of people that make their living by the gospel, but at the same time, they are not to become greedy of gain. D.A. Carson is very helpful here. I, I, I love I love what he writes, and he wrote something that was uh, very helpful to explain this here in his notes. He wrote, the church does not pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. The church recognizes that those who serve in this way must be kept and are worthy of it. In practice, this means that the ideal situation occurs when the church is as generous as possible and the ministers do not concern themselves with material matters and are above selfish material interests. The worst situation occurs when the ministers are grasping and covetous, constantly comparing themselves with other professionals, while the church adopts the attitude, you keep him humble, Lord, and we'll keep him poor. The point to be made here is, for preachers, is that we're not to be concerned with material wealth. And there are men in, in this room, uh, not just myself, you are, you are preachers in, in ministry. There are others, not necessarily preachers or pastors, but uh, in ministry in one way or another. And, and we are called uh, not to be concerned with the material wealth. Rather, we as representatives of Christ are to be concerned with the work of the ministry, the mission of the harvest. Now, of course, we have needs to be met. So the point to the church is, take care of them. Take care of the pastor. Provide for the needs of the missionary. Take care of the needs of the evangelist so that those who make their living by the gospel may serve and freely give and neither be neglected nor distracted. Think about it for a moment. I've I've talked to a few people recently about this and this has kind of been on my heart a little bit and it's a bit of a pat on the back for you. But uh, Think about what it says when any church, but let's let's just talk about this this body of believers. When a church assigns a specific portion of the offerings, sometimes a significant portion of the offerings, to care for the needs of their pastor. Now we joke, pastors only work an hour a week, right? Hopefully, it's obvious that I work a few more hours than that. But I could take a job somewhere else, and make money on that way and not be a a financial burden to the church and still provide pastoral care and 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 preach on Sundays and oversee different parts of the of the ministry here and there are a lot of pastors who do that many pastors do this and i and i respect what they do but the fact that you provide a generous financial provision to meet my family's needs to meet the needs of those who uh, go, represent our church as missionaries, shows that you value the office of an elder or a pastor. And it shows that you feel it's important enough that while you go to your job Monday through Friday and you put in your 40, 50, 60, some of you 80 hours a week, 
doing uh, building something or selling this or, 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 or participating in some sort of commerce, there is someone who spends his time studying the Scriptures, preparing uh, lessons and sermons, providing oversight of the church and caring for the flock. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a high honor. It's a generous provision. I might be just an ox, like Paul says, but I'm grateful that you keep my mouth full at times. Then in verse number 11, look down and there and Jesus says the next thing to him. He says, go looking for the worthy. That is, that they were to enter towns and identify the worthy sheep. Now, whatever town or village that they were to go to, listen to what he says, verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. The obvious question here is, well, what makes a person worthy? I mean, how do you know if a person's worthy or not? What's what's the qualifier here? As we continue reading down, we see that someone is worthy when they are willing to receive the the apostles and to hear their message. Jesus was telling them to find the people who would receive them and hear their message while they were in that city. Now, after they identify those who were thought to be worthy and who were thought to be willing to listen... Verse 12 then says to enter the house and greet it. He says exactly that. As you enter the house, greet it. They would have some sort of a, of a, of a, of a phrase like peace be to this house. They were, they were offering the peace, not necessarily their peace, but the peace of God. It was, it was, it was rather customary, but it also has some, some, uh, spiritual signification there. Uh, peace be to this house as they entered in. And if the house was worthy, he says, that if there was someone in there that would receive them and hear them, he says, and they were to let their peace come upon that house. In other words, they were to continue sharing the message of hope with the people in that house, as well as stay there in that house until it was time for them to move on to the next town. And I can't help but think here that the command to stay was so that they wouldn't keep looking for something bigger and better. If I'm going to the people that God wants me to go to, oftentimes He's going to lead me to the people I wouldn't have chosen. And it would have been wrong to look for an upgrade. The first house I walked into that I thought was worthy and I gave my greeting of peace and they received me and they welcomed me and then I look around and it's not quite to the standards of the Holiday Inn. It's not what I kind of hoped it would be. There might be something even nicer down the road. And there would be a temptation to look around and see, is there nothing better? Is there something maybe that has a pool? Maybe they have air conditioning. Maybe they've got a continental buffet. I mean, all they have is, is, is fruit here. Why don't we move down the road and find something bigger and better? And I think that this is what Jesus is avoiding them, not to look for upgrades. As they entered the city, they were to look for opportunities, not luxury. And remember, they were not to be concerned with their comfort or their provision. They were to rely on the Lord to provide. And if the Lord provided a house for them to stay in, that's where they should stay. In other words, laborers shouldn't be obsessed with amenities, but rather with opportunities to harvest wherever that may be. If that's in the nice part of town with wonderful creature comforts, then great, so be it. But if not, then that's fine too. Wherever they were, they were to be content with what God provided for them. The house was considered worthy, not because of what it could provide the travelers, but it was considered worthy because it was willing to receive them and hear what they had to say. 
And I wonder, as I read through this many times this week, I wonder if my ministering looks like that. And I wonder if you'd be so bold as to ask yourself the question, does my ministry look like that? Do I focus more on the opportunities to share or on the opportunities to advance? There's something to be said about contentment, about trusting God to bring the things that I need, to supply even the things that I want, to bring promotion, bring advancement. As we represent Christ, I wonder, are we more concerned with comforts or opportunities to serve? See, I wonder if God hasn't put each of us where we are in the harvest field in order to reach someone in that portion of the harvest field. But if we're too concerned with being comfortable or having nicer things, getting that upgrade, getting that new, bigger and better thing, we might miss the opportunities that are right in front of us. So would I be willing to pass up a promotion, upgrade, in order to better minister and represent Jesus right where I am? right in the corner of the harvest field he sent me to. Of course, there's nothing wrong with raises. There's nothing wrong with promotion, advancement, upgrades, even being moved to another place. But shouldn't we be more concerned with the greener grass here than the green grass over there? Ask ourselves, how would Jesus minister at my job? How would Jesus minister with this house that He has given me? How would Jesus use the, 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 the equipment, the, the things, the, the material possessions that I have, how would Jesus use those things? The, qual- the, the talents, the, the, the gifts that I have, who would Jesus pay attention to? What would be His focus? Of course, not everybody that we talk to is going to want to receive us or hear us, and Jesus even says as much as he continues in the last part of our passage. If the house was unworthy, they were unwilling to receive the team of apostles. As they entered the house, Jesus said to them, let your peace return to you and leave. Their offer of peace was not received, and therefore it should be withdrawn. Look in verse 13. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet, when you leave that house or town. And as they left, they were to shake off the dust from their feet as a way of disassociating themselves from the judgment that awaited these unreceptive, unrepentant people, whether they be in that house or whether they be in that city. Grant Osborne wrote, this means that God has declared the place unclean, virtually pagan, and unworthy of the gospel of the kingdom. And to continue preaching there is to cast pearls in front of pigs. Now, for sake of time, we can't really develop this much more, but remember that we're talking about Jew, Jewish people. People who felt that they were clean. People who prided themselves on not being like the pagan Gentiles. And yet, these people that, G, that, that, that the apostles would go to, some would reject, and they were basically recategorized as pagans, as pigs. In other words, Jesus was saying to let the people 
prove themselves to be worthy or not. You don't need to do it for them. It's not your job to to determine who's worthy of hearing the Gospel. Just offer it to all who will hear and all who will receive. Sometimes there will be people who are willing to hear and receive. Sometimes they will immediately be ready. Sometimes they will require a little bit of time. And then there will be others and maybe many others who will simply not want anything to do with the Gospel. Ever. And if they will not receive it, the instruction here, don't force it on them. Just move on. Go to the next place. But he said that judgment awaits those people who judge themselves to be unworthy. He said in verse 15 there that it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on judgment day than for that house or village that will not hear or receive. Look in verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, that Jewish town. Sodom and Gomorrah was like the benchmark of wickedness and sin. They were the one, they used that as a, as a comparison. We're not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, but what Jesus says here is for those, those nice little Jewish towns that will not receive you, it will be better on judgment day for the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. For that house, for that town. Today there are still a great harvest and a great need for laborers. Christ calls us to go into His field and represent Him to the lost and to the needy. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.18, he said, God through Christ reconciled us to Himself. He said He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And He entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. So we've been called to represent Him. And He is our example. He has done for us already what He asks us to do. So we can look to Him as our example. This isn't, this isn't a performance-based uh, mission here where you go out and you work hard and you do and do and do and do and do. No, this is a reflection-based mission. It's a reflection of who Jesus is. And what He has done in our lives. We are His ambassadors. We are called and equipped by His Spirit and sent into His harvest. And it is our task to simply represent the God who has done a work in our hearts and reflect Him to a needy world. Paul wrote, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. He finishes this little passage by saying, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So as we go, may we carry his message, may we find his sheep, and may we represent him well as ambassadors.